Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode was the 1835 First Vision account suppressed. You will recall that there are four primary accounts of the First Vision, and by primary, I mean the four accounts that are either written by or apparently dictated by and closely supervised by Joseph Smith. We've talked a great deal about the 1832 account, the one that was written in his own hand, and the subsequent suppression of that First Vision account by Joseph Fielding Smith, the church historian. Today we'll be talking more in depth about the 1835 account of the First Vision. But before we do that, let's round out the other two accounts, which are the 1838 account of the First Vision, which is the one that we are most familiar with, the one that was written in the church history and subsequently became the official version contained in the Pearl of Great Price. The fourth account was written in 1842 as part of the Wentworth Letter. Most Mormons are familiar with the Wentworth Letter because the Articles of Faith come from that letter, but there was much more to the Wentworth Letter than just the Articles of Faith. It also contained a brief history of the LDS Church up to that point in time, and as part of that history, it included a version of the First Vision account. Now, the 1838 account and the 1842 account were both published in 1842. The reason it's called the 1838 account is because it was written down as part of the manuscript history of the church in 1838. It was published for the first time in 1842, and the 1842 account was also published in that year of 1842. The 1832 account, the earliest account we have of the first vision, was written in 1832, but it was not published until 1965, over 130 years later. And the reason there was such a long period between its being recorded in 1832 and published in 1965 is because of active suppression of that document by leaders of the LDS Church. The first hint we have of something similarly suspicious going on with the 1835 account is that even though it was written down apparently in 1835, it was not published until the year after the 1832 account surfaced in 1965. The 1835 account was not published until 1966. So that immediately makes one wonder, why such a long period between its being written down and its being published? Interestingly, even Daniel C. Peterson, the artful dodger of Mormon apologetics, seems to tacitly recognize that there may be a problem with the 1835 account of the First Vision as well as the 1832 account of the First Vision in a recent blog post of his, over at his blog titled Sick et Non. We talked about these two blog posts of his from June 9th and June 10th of 2019 in response to my podcast, number 69, in which I called him out for prevaricating when Daniel C. Peterson had written that there has been no suppression about the First Vision accounts. Now there we were focusing like a laser beam on the 1832 account of the First Vision, that there indeed had been suppression, and nevertheless, Daniel C. Peterson was putting in print the claim that there had been no suppression of the First Vision accounts. Well, finally, after I called him out, he admitted that it was possible that Joseph Fielding Smith had suppressed the 1832 account of the First Vision, but he went further and actually said that it was possible that Joseph Fielding Smith had suppressed one or more 
accounts of the first vision. Now, that's very interesting, because if he had said only one, we would know he was talking about the 1832 account of the first vision. What might he mean when he says one or more accounts of the first vision? Well, it would seem it can only mean the 1835 account of the first vision. As I say, the other two accounts, the 1838 and the 1842 account, were both published in Joseph Smith's lifetime. There is only one other version than the 1832 account that he could possibly have reference to, and it is the 1835 account which did not see the light of day, at least not publicly, until 1966, the year after the 1832 account was published. Let me find that particular line in Daniel C. Peterson's blog. Here it is. It's from his first of the two blog posts from June 9th, 2019, titled Once More on the First Vision. In that post, Daniel C. Peterson states, Is it possible that Elder Joseph Fielding Smith sat on one or more unpublished first vision accounts. Yes, it is, he admits. So it appears that Daniel C. Peterson is aware of information that leads him to acknowledge the possibility not only that Joseph Fielding Smith sat on the 1832 account of the first vision, but that he sat on, or suppressed, one or more unpublished first vision accounts. It would seem, as we have discussed, that the one or more can only have reference to the 1835 account of the first vision. In that same blog post, Daniel C. Peterson gives us a number of articles that were written after the 1832 account was allowed to come to light in the master's thesis of Paul Chessman, a graduate student at Brigham Young University in 1965. The next time the 1832 account was mentioned was in an article by James B. Allen titled The Significance of Joseph Smith's First Vision in Mormon Thought, published in Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, Volume 1, Number 3, in 1966. So this is the year after the 1832 account was discovered by Paul Chessman. And once again, notice it is not being published in a church publication, but rather in Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, not a publication sanctioned or endorsed by the LDS Church. It is in this article that not only is reference made to the 1832 account that had been discovered only the year before, but also the first publication in history of the 1835 account of the First Vision. And James B. Allen talks about the discovery of this 1835 account. I'm going to read now the relevant passages from this article, from Dialogue, 1966, James B. Allen writing. In the subsection of that article titled, New Evidence of Limited Circulation in the 1830s, James B. Allen first addresses the newly discovered 1832 account from the year previous. This is what he writes. In spite of the foregoing discussion, there is some interesting evidence to suggest the possibility that the story of Joseph Smith's first vision was known, probably on a limited basis, during the formative decade of church history. One of the most significant documents of that period yet discovered was brought to light in 1965 by Paul R. Chessman, that's C-H-E-E-S-M-A-N, Chessman, a graduate student at Brigham Young University. This discovery is a handwritten manuscript, apparently composed about 1833. Subsequent scholarship has narrowed it down to 1832, but as of this article, he's saying it was composed about 1833 and either written or dictated by Joseph Smith. Once again, subsequent scholarship has shown that it was actually written by Joseph Smith. It contains an account of the early experiences of the Mormon prophet and includes the story of the first vision. 
while the story varies in some details from the version presently accepted. Now, that's about all he's going to say about it here, that it varies in some details from the 1838 official version. While the story varies in some details from the version presently accepted, enough is intact to indicate that at least as early as 1833, Joseph Smith contemplated writing and perhaps publishing it. The manuscript has apparently lain in the LDS Church Historian's Office for many years, yet few, if any, who saw it realized its profound historical significance. Well, we understand from subsequent scholarship that at least one person, Joseph Fielding Smith, the church historian at the time, did see it and did realize its profound historical significance, and that's why he decided to cut it out of the letter book and store it away in his safe in the church historian's office for three decades. We've talked about that in some detail in prior podcasts. Going on, the mere existence of the manuscript, of course, does nothing to either prove or disprove the authenticity of the story, but it demonstrates the historical fact that in the early 1830s, the story of the vision was beginning to find place in the formulation of Mormon thought. But now in the same subsection, he gets to the newly, newly discovered 1835 account of the first vision. He goes on, another document of almost equal importance has recently been brought to light by a member of the staff at the church historian's office. Now we find out in another source that that member of the staff was Dean Jesse. And there is a footnote here, footnote 11. If we follow that footnote, it states, the document, that's the 1835 account, the document was brought to the attention of this writer, i.e. James B. Allen, in June 1966. So only a few months prior to the publication of this article in Dialogue. The document was brought to the attention of this writer in June 1966, and he had the opportunity to examine it. Here he's talking about himself in the third person. Since the document is bound with the manuscript history, it is unusual that someone had not found it earlier and recognized its significance. Here, James B. Allen is suggesting that it was unusual someone hadn't seen it earlier and recognized its significance. In other words, it's right here bound in the manuscript history of the church, so why hasn't it been brought to light and published prior to this? This comment alone raises certain suspicions that James B. Allen himself may or may not have had on the subject. Once again, since the document, the 1835 account, since the document is bound with the manuscript history, it is unusual that someone had not found it earlier and recognized its significance. It seems apparent, however, that, as in the case of Chessman's document, the 1832 account, as in the case of Chessman's document, few, if any, people had been aware of it. The fact that the use of the manuscript history is highly restricted due to its extremely high value, and that any research done in it is done through a microfilm copy, could help account for the fact that researchers generally had not discovered what was in the back of the book. Well, that certainly explains why researchers generally had not discovered what was in the back of the book, but it really doesn't address the issue of members of the church historian's office who have wielded absolute power and control over these documents for over a hundred years and why it would have been generally unknown to them. So let's talk a little bit about the manuscript history. What is he talking about there? Well, the manuscript history is once again in a letter book. It's a very thick letter book. There are a lot of pages in this letter book. And technically, there are six volumes to the manuscript history of the church, but here we are talking about the first of those six volumes. 
And the manuscript history is the history of the church, which was commenced in 1838, which was supervised by Joseph Smith and which ended up being used for the published version of the history of the church. Now, going back to the main body of the article, what we're going to find out is that James B. Allen, or more accurately, the church historian staff member who showed it to James B. Allen, when he was looking at the original document, the original manuscript history of the church, he discovered that in the back of it, written upside down, was this 1835 account of the first vision. Let's go on with the article. Once again, another document of almost equal importance has recently been brought to light by a member of the staff at the church historian's office. Then there was footnote 11 going on with the article. It is located in the back of book A1 of the handwritten manuscript of the history of the church, commonly referred to as the manuscript history. The writing of the manuscript history was personally supervised by Joseph Smith beginning in 1838, although it is not known who actually transcribed each part of the work. Under the date of November 9, 1835, that will become a very important date because that is the date on which the 1835 account of the first vision was related by Joseph Smith. Under the date of November 9, 1835, the story is told of a man visiting Joseph Smith, calling himself Joshua, the Jewish minister. Now, if you're familiar with church history, you may be aware of the visitation of this fellow called Joshua, the Jewish minister, to Joseph Smith in Kirtland, Ohio. It is referenced in the history of the church. It is referenced in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith and this long discourse that Joseph Smith had with this individual, Joshua, the Jewish minister. The thing that's important to note here is that in the course of the conversation, Joseph Smith related an account of his first vision. That is the 1835 account of the first vision as he related it to Joshua, the Jewish minister. But for some reason, that account of the first vision was edited out of the story of Joseph Smith's encounter with Joshua, the Jewish minister, not only from the handwritten manuscript history of the church, but also from the published history of the church, as well as the published teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, which you will recall was edited by Joseph Fielding Smith and published in 1938 while Joseph Fielding Smith was the church historian. Going on with the 1966 dialogue article by James B. Allen. Under the date of November 9, 1835, the story is told of a man visiting Joseph Smith calling himself Joshua, the Jewish minister. The conversation naturally turned to religion, and it is recorded that the Mormon prophet told his guest, quote, the circumstances connected with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon as recorded in the former part of this history, period, end of quote. From reading the manuscript history, therefore, as well as the printed history of the church, one would get the impression that at this time Joseph Smith related only the Book of Mormon story. Why is that? Because immediately after that is where the first vision account occurred, the 1835 first vision account, but it was not included in the manuscript history of the church or in the published history of the church. Once again, the article states from reading the manuscript history, therefore, as well as the printed history of the church, one would get the impression that at this time, Joseph Smith related only the Book of Mormon story. In the back of the book, however, this is the back of the manuscript history of the church. In the back of the book, however, is a most curious and revealing document. 
This is going to be the 1835 account of the first vision. It is curious in several ways. First, it was apparently written in 1835 by someone other than Joseph Smith, for it records the day-to-day events in the prophet's life in the third person, as if it were a scribe recording them as he observed them. Next, it is not written in the finished style that characterizes the manuscript history, indicating that it was not intended for publication without some revision. Finally, in order to read the document, one must turn the book upside down, which suggests that the manuscript certainly was not intended to be part of the finished history. Wait a second, we've encountered this kind of thing before. In a letter book, a journal-type book with blank pages that are lined for ease of writing, one can choose which side of the book is the front and which side is the back. And once one has begun writing in one side, all you have to do is flip it over and turn it around and open it up, and now you've got a new front of the book in which to begin writing. This appears to be what happened with this 1835 account of the first vision. It is in the back of the manuscript history, written upside down. Once again, back to the article. Finally, in order to read the document, one must turn the book upside down, which suggests that the manuscript certainly was not intended to be part of the finished history. In short, it is almost certain that the document in the back of the book comprises the original notes from which the manuscript history was later compiled, and that it is actually a daily account of Joseph Smith's activities in 1835, as recorded by a scribe. Again, what James B. Allen is suggesting is that the entire story of Joseph Smith's conversation and encounter with Joshua the Jewish minister was found at the end of the manuscript history and was written earlier, around 1835, remember the manuscript history itself was not commenced until 1838, but that it was written in the back of the book that was subsequently used for the manuscript history in 1835, and that this account was used as the source for the meeting of Joseph Smith with Joshua, the Jewish minister, that was included in the manuscript history of the church. The thing that seems inexplicable to James B. Allen though he doesn't put too fine a point on it, is why is it that the 1835 account of Joshua the Jewish minister was used and incorporated into the manuscript history of the church, but the first vision account told during that meeting was deleted. In other words, whoever used the 1835 account as the basis had to have seen that the 1835 account of the first vision was there in the story about Joseph Smith's meeting with Joshua the Jewish minister, and yet nevertheless, for some reason, chose not to include it. This in spite of the fact that this is a very long encounter with Joshua, the Jewish minister, and a great many details are given. But for some reason, the first vision account there was not seen fit to include. Now, this may have had something to do with the fact that by the time they got to 1835 in the manuscript history of the church, they had already, at the very beginning of that manuscript history, given the 1838 account of the first vision, which differs in some details from the 1835 account, and we'll get to that here in a few minutes. But when the 1835 account of the first vision was deleted from the story of Joshua, the Jewish minister, it made it look like Joseph Smith told him only about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and that there was no first vision account to be related. This is why earlier in this article, James B. Allen says, the conversation naturally turned to religion and it is recorded that the Mormon prophet told his guest the circumstances connected with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon as related in the former part of this history with no reference whatsoever to the first vision. Continuing where we left off, 
The importance of the manuscript here lies in the fact that the scribe wrote down what Joseph Smith said to his visitor, and he began not by telling the story of the discovery of the Book of Mormon, but with an account of the first vision. You see, when the first vision is put back in, it makes more sense in terms of the chronology of the history of the church. Again, James B. Allen goes on. Again, the details of the story vary somewhat from the accepted version. See, once again, as with the 1832 account, so with the 1835 account. The details of the story vary somewhat from the accepted version. But the manuscript, if authentic, at least demonstrates that by 1835, the story had been told to someone. And that is the end of the relevant section relating to the 1835 account from this article. Although James B. Allen does not specifically mention that it was Dean Jesse who discovered the 1835 account, we know that from footnote 3 of the article that James B. Allen wrote for the Improvement Era in 1970 about the different accounts of the first vision. In footnote 3 to that article, he names this researcher as being Dean Jesse. Now, it strikes me as a strange thing that Dean Jesse, a staff worker in the church historian's office, should be the first one to discover this 1835 account of the first vision, and yet it is not Dean Jesse who publishes on it. Rather, Dean Jesse shows it to another scholar, James B. Allen, and James B. Allen is the first one then who is able to publish this 1835 account of the first vision. I imagine there's a story behind that unusual series of events. And perhaps some of that has to do with this 1966 article by James B. Allen being published not in a church publication, but in Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. In the 1966 article, he does not name the researcher. He only names Dean Jesse four years later in the 1970 Improvement Era article, which is published by the church. It is possible that Dean Jesse as a staff member at the church historian's office in 1966 when he discovered this 1835 account, did not feel comfortable for some reason publishing it himself, but instead showed it to another scholar, James B. Allen, who publishes it in 1966 while simultaneously not specifying the name of the historian who showed it to him in the first place, i.e. Dean Jesse. In other words, Dean Jesse may have been flying a bit under the radar here until four years later when the church in the improvement era published about the article and then it was permissible for James Allen to name Dean Jesse in footnote three as the person who drew his attention to the 1835 account. That much is speculation on my part, but it is hard to otherwise understand why a historian, a scholar, who makes a one-in-a-lifetime discovery of an 1835 account of the First Vision is not the person to publish it himself, but hands it off to another scholar to publish in a non-church periodical where Dean Jesse's name is scrupulously avoided as being the person who found it and showed it to James B. Allen. At the end of this article in the 1966 dialogue, James B. Allen now, for the first time, publishes the 1835 account of the first vision. This is under the section titled Comparison of the Accounts. And here it is. In 1835, Joseph Smith's scribe heard him tell the story to a visitor. As recalled and recorded by the scribe, the Mormon leader's words were nearly as follows being wrought up in my mind respecting the subject of religion and looking at the different systems taught the children of men, I knew not who was right or who was wrong, but considered it of the first importance to me that I should be right in matters of so much moment, matter involving eternal consequences. 
Being thus perplexed in mind, I retired to the silent grove and there bowed down before the Lord. Now you'll notice that in the 1835 account, we already have a significant change from the 1832 account. In the 1832 account, Joseph Smith has already figured out before he goes to pray that all the churches are in a state of apostasy. And he figured that out from his study of the scriptures. Here, he doesn't know. In the 1835 account, written three years later, he has changed that fundamental fact, and now going into the grove, he doesn't know who is right and who is wrong. He says, he considered it of the first importance to me that I should be right in matters of so much moment, matters involving eternal consequences. Being thus perplexed in mind, I retired to the silent grove and there bowed down before the Lord. Under a realizing sense, if the Bible be true, ask and you shall receive, knock and it shall be opened, seek and you shall find. And again, if any man lack wisdom, let of God by which he probably meant let him ask of God, but it actually says let of God, who giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not. Information was what I most desired at this time and with a fixed determination to obtain it. I called on the Lord for the first time in the place above stated, or in other words, I made a fruitless attempt to pray. My tongue seemed to be swollen in my mouth so that I could not utter. Here we have the first mention of this fact, his not being able to pray because his tongue is swollen in his mouth. He says, I heard a noise behind me like someone walking towards me. This is also the first time we have this fact, and it is the only account of the first vision accounts in which we have this mention of a sound being made like someone walking behind him. I heard a noise behind me like someone walking towards me. I strove again to pray, but could not. The noise of walking seemed to draw nearer. I sprang upon my feet and looked around, but I saw no person or thing that was calculated to produce the noise of walking. As I say, this element of the first vision is not present in the 1832 account, the 1838 account, or the 1842 account. It is preserved only in the 1835 account, which did not see the light of day until 1966 in this very article written by James B. Allen for Dialogue. I sprang upon my feet and looked around, but I saw no person or thing that was calculated to produce the noise of walking going on. I kneeled again. My mouth was opened and my tongue loosed. I called on the Lord in mighty prayer. A pillar of fire appeared above my head, which presently rested down upon me and filled me with unspeakable joy. A personage appeared in the midst of this pillar of flame, which was spread all around and yet nothing consumed. Another personage soon appeared like unto the first. So at the beginning of this, it sounds like it's going to be the 1832 account all over again, and only one personage is going to be mentioned as being seen. But after one personage appears, another personage appears to join the first. A personage appeared in the midst of this pillar of flame, which was spread all around and yet nothing consumed. Another personage soon appeared like unto the first. He said unto me, thy sins are forgiven thee. He testified also unto me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the final line is another element which does not appear in any other first vision accounts. Joseph Smith says, I saw many angels in this vision. Period. End of the 1835 account. In the next paragraph, James B. Allen makes some comments about the 1835 account. He writes this, in this account, Joseph emphasized the difficulty he had in uttering his first prayer, and the noise of walking 
seems to suggest the evil opposition which became an essential element in the official version of the story. You see, there was no evil element in the 1832 account of the first vision either. It makes its first appearance in the 1835 account. And in the 1835 account, it is only suggested. It will not be until the 1838 account when the evil influence of Satan is presented in unmistakable terms and greatly elaborated upon. Furthermore, James B. Allen goes on, furthermore, he told of having seen two persons, although one preceded the other. The two persons looked alike, and the second assured him that his sins had been forgiven. The most unusual statement, however, this is James B. Allen's comment, the most unusual statement, however, is Joseph's declaration that he saw many angels in this vision. I am coming back to continue recording this episode after taking two days off from where I just finished. In that time, I have been working very, very hard researching in the Joseph Smith Papers Project, trying my best to understand what on earth it was that James B. Allen was talking about in finding this 1835 account of the first vision upside down at the end of the first volume of the Manuscript History of the Church. I am very happy to say that after a lot of work in this regard, I finally figured it out. And I have some additional information to provide to you which was not apparently available to James B. Allen when he wrote his 1966 article for Dialogue. I think the easiest way to explain this is going to be to talk about three documents that are contained in the Joseph Smith Papers Project, which deal with Joseph Smith's encounter with Joshua, the Jewish minister, in November of 1835. If you go to the Joseph Smith Papers Project online, which I have done, and go to the home page and then look under Journals, you will find a page that says Images and Transcripts at the top, Journals 1832 through 1839, and then the number 5 in parentheses. That's because there are five such journals. Click on that link, and that takes you to the five journals. The first is Journal 1832 to 1834. The second, which is the important one for our purposes today, is Journal 1835 to 1836. Click on that. Now we come up with Joseph Smith's journal for 1835 and 1836, and in it is contained his record of his meeting with Joshua the Jewish minister. It appears as if this journal was relatively contemporaneously recorded. In other words, his account of his visit with Joshua the Jewish minister was done at or around the time it actually occurred in November of 1835. If you go to page 22 of that journal, you will find the relevant entry. And actually, the people at the Joseph Smith Papers Project have even given an editorial note in their transcription of this journal page. The following entry describes a visit to Joseph Smith by Robert Matthews, more commonly known as the prophet Matthias. This is Joshua, the Jewish minister. He had a lot of names that he went under. And it goes on in some detail about who this person was and his background. Then it gets to the transcription of the page itself, which is under date of November 9th through 11th, because Joshua, the Jewish minister, or Robert Matthias, hung around for a couple of days in Kirtland with Joseph Smith, and Joseph Smith took a great deal of time and a number of pages in recording what transpired between them. The first thing to note about this journal is that Joseph Smith is writing in the first person. Now, he may have been dictating it to a scribe, but he's dictating it in the first person. It begins, Monday morning, 9th, after breakfast, Mary Witcher came in and wished to see me. I granted her request. So you see, it's in the first person, Joseph Smith speaking. Then it goes on, while sitting in my house, technically it says, while sitting in my house, between the hours of 10 and 11 this morning, 
a man came in and introduced himself to me, calling himself by the name of Joshua, the Jewish minister. See, there it begins. Now, if you go to page 23 of the journal, the next thing to note is that not only is Joseph Smith writing contemporaneously about this encounter, he also includes the First Vision account. This is something of which James B. Allen was apparently not aware when he wrote his 1966 dialogue article. At least he nowhere mentions it in that article. And this is no slam on him because the archives of the church were not open to just anybody who wanted to go in there. In fact, they were kept under lock and key and very few people were allowed to see what was contained in the documents in the church archives. But here, going down on page 23 of this journal, Joseph Smith writes, I made some inquiry after his name, but received no definite answer. We soon commenced talking upon the subject of religion. And after I had made some remarks concerning the Bible, I commenced giving him a relation of the circumstances connected with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon as follows. Now that is the key point right there in that sentence. I commenced giving him a relation of the circumstances connected with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon as follows. Because now at that point, Joseph Smith is going to start talking about his first vision experience. This is the point at which this first vision account becomes excised from the history of the church in later versions. We'll get to that later. But here's what he says. Circumstances connected with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon as follows. Being wrought up in my mind respecting the subject of religion and looking at the different systems taught the children of men, I knew not who was right or who was wrong, and considering it of the first importance that I should be right in matters that involved eternal consequences, being thus perplexed in mind, I retired to the silent grove and bowed down before the Lord under a realizing sense that he had said, if the Bible be true, ask and you shall receive, etc. And then it goes on with the same language that I quoted earlier in this podcast. It continues on to page 24 of the journal with the account of the first vision. He talks about one personage appearing in the midst of the pillar of flame and then another person joining him soon after like unto the first. And the last thing I want to mention is the curious statement at the end of his relation of the vision, and I saw many angels in this vision. The thing I want to mention about that is that that line, and I saw many angels in this vision, is interlineated in the text. In other words, the account had been completely written without the line, and I also saw many angels in this vision. And at some point after the account had been written, it was decided that that line needed to be added, and therefore it was later at some point written in between the lines that had already been written. And I saw many angels in this vision. That will become important here in a second. So there was already existing in the church archives, in Joseph Smith's journal for 1835, his account in first person of his encounter with Joshua the Jewish minister and his recitation of the first vision account. This is the earliest document in the archives that contains this account in Joseph Smith's journal for 1835. Now go back to the homepage of the Joseph Smith Papers Project, scroll down from journals, past administrative records, past revelations and translations, and now you'll see histories. Click on that. At the top of the page, it says Joseph Smith histories. Click on that. At the top now, you'll see history circa summer 1832. That was the initial attempt to write the history of the church. That was letter book one that we've talked about extensively in relation to the 1832 account of the first vision because that is where it occurs and that is the book from which it was cut by Joseph Fielding Smith or somebody at his direction hidden in his safe for 30 years and then returned to the book in the mid-1960s to be shown to Paul Chessman. But below history circa summer 1832 is the history that we are interested in for purposes of this podcast. It says history, 1834 to 1836. Click on that. And what we will find 
is a history that was commenced in December of 1834 and ends in January of 1836. So really, it covers basically all of 1835 with a little bit before and after. The reason this history is important is for a number of reasons. First off, it also contains Joseph Smith's encounter with Joshua the Jewish minister, and it also contains his relating of the first vision account. Now, what appears to have happened here is that in creating this history, they used Joseph Smith's journal as a template and basically copied from his journal, at least for this account, but instead of having it in first person, they changed it to the third person so it looks more like a history and less like a journal. If you go to the table of contents and then scroll down to November 9th, 1835, which was a Monday apparently, it's page 120 in this history. You can click on that and there we have the account of Joshua the Jewish minister. And there we can read, The conversation soon turned upon the subject of religion, and after the subject of this narrative, that's Joseph Smith, see, now it's in the third person, and after the subject of this narrative had made some remarks concerning the Bible, he commenced giving him a relation of the circumstances connected with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, which were nearly as follows. Now, you will note that although this history is written in the third person, when it shifts to Joseph Smith relating his experience with the first vision, now it goes into first person. So it says he, Joseph Smith, he commenced giving him, Joshua the Jewish minister, he commenced giving him a relation of the circumstances connected with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, which were nearly as follows, now it shifts into first person, being wrought up in my mind respecting the subject of religion and looking at the different systems taught the children of men, I knew not who was right or who was wrong. And now this goes and follows exactly along, or nearly exactly along, with Joseph Smith's 1835 journal, which was obviously the source for this. We go from page 120 to 121 of this history, and we read the same language that we had from the journal. A pillar of fire appeared above my head, which presently rested down upon me and filled me with unspeakable joy. A personage appeared in the midst of this pillar of flame, which was spread all around, and yet nothing consumed. Another personage soon appeared like unto the first. He said unto me, Thy sins are forgiven thee. And now we get to the end of this recitation, where he says, I saw many angels in this video. Now, the other thing that's important about this, remember I said that in the journal, that line, I saw many angels in this vision, was interlineated. It was written after the text itself had been written down and put back there as an afterthought that needed to be included as part of the narrative. In this 1835 history, it is no longer interlineated. It is made part of the text itself. It occurs as you would normally expect it to, which is another indication that the journal was written first and this history was written later using the journal as a template or as a source to copy down this account of the first vision. So there are two places and two documents in the church archives where the 1835 account of the first vision is written. Now, the next thing I had a great deal of difficulty with in researching this was that James B. Allen said in his article that the 1835 account of the first vision was written upside down in the back of Manuscript History of the Church, Volume 1 or technically A1, because that's how they designate Volume 1. Now, let me talk a little bit about the manuscript history of the church. This is a completely separate document from this 1834 to 1836 history. The manuscript history of the church, you can find under the histories as well. They are six volumes, and let me talk a little bit about those. They are not designated Volumes 1 through 6, because that would make it too easy. Instead, they are given the numbers A1, B1, C1, D1, E1, and F1. 
Those are the six volumes of the history of the church. You may recall that Joseph Smith started different histories of the church over his lifetime. He started one in 1832, and eventually it petered out and was set aside. He also started this history from 1834 to 1836 that we've just talked about, and then that got set aside. But in 1838, finally, Joseph Smith commenced writing a history of the church, which continued on through six volumes. And these are six big letter books. For lack of a better term, they are big bound books containing hundreds of blank pages with lines written on the pages so that people could buy them and use them to record whatever it is they wanted to record. Well, in these six big letter books, Joseph Smith, by way of his scribes, recorded the history of the church. Now, this manuscript history of the church, it's called manuscript history because it's in manuscript form. It's in handwriting. This manuscript history of the church was subsequently published by the church, and it is frequently called the Joseph Smith history of the church or history of the church by Joseph Smith. And when I joined the church, it was very common for members of the church to have this set of books in paperback format on their bookshelves. It was in paperback, as I say, and the different volumes had different colors, and they were labeled one through six. And actually, there was a seventh volume, which was titled Interregnum. And Interregnum meant that period of time between the death of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young taking over the leadership of the church in 1847. Interregnum being a fancy term for that period of time between the rulership of kings. Here it was applied to that time period between the church having a president and prophet leading it. And that time period again was from 1844 to 1847. Obviously Joseph Smith was not involved in the writing of that part of church history. But Joseph Smith was very much involved in supervising the manuscript history of the church. Okay, now having said that, the problem that I had was I kept going back to volume one or A1 of the manuscript history of the church in the Joseph Smith Papers Project and going through it and going to the back of it, like James B. Allen said in his dialogue article from 1966, going to the back of the manuscript history of the church, volume one, and trying to find this upside down 1835 account of the first vision. I could not find it. It is not there. I'm wondering what's going on. So I keep digging further and further and finally I figure it out. Here's the deal, okay? We've already talked about these letter books being used for multiple purposes and that you can choose which is the front of the book simply by turning it around and flipping it over. Well, here's what happened. With this history, the 1834 to 1836 account of the history in which is contained the 1835 account of the first vision, which we just read from pages 120 and 121. All of this and much more, obviously, since you have to get to the 120s to get to the Joshua the Jewish minister part, all of this and more, over 100 pages, was written in a brand new letter book which had been purchased for that purpose. Eventually, they got tired or for whatever reason, they stopped this history in January of 1836, which takes it up to page 185. So this is a book that has hundreds of pages in it. They're all blank, but they use this letter book and they write up to page 185 with this history of the church from 1834 to 1836. Then they set it aside. Two years later now, 1838 comes along and they decide, okay, this time we really mean it. We're really going to write the history of the church. And they commence the first volume of what is going to become the six volume manuscript history of the church. Here's the key. They don't go out and get a new letter book and start over from scratch. Instead, they take the same letter book that the 1834 to 1836 history was written in. They flip it over. They turn it around. They make the back the front and they use that letter book to commence writing the manuscript history of the church. 
So volume one or A1 of the manuscript history of the church, as you'll find it in the Joseph Smith Papers Project, is the flip side of the same document, the same book in which this earlier history was written. And actually, if you go to the source note on this history, 1834 to 1836 history, if you go to the source note and click on that and then look far enough down in it, you'll find this. While the 1834 to 1836 history was being created, the volume was apparently kept in the homes of Joseph Smith's scribes. In 1839, here it says 1839, in 1839, scribe James Mulholland converted the book into the first volume of Joseph Smith's multi-volume manuscript history. So I've been saying 1838. It may have been started in 1839, this manuscript history of the church. Nevertheless, that is the key. That is what tripped me to the fact that the reason I could not find the 1835 account of the first vision upside down at the end of volume one of manuscript history of the church is because what they have done in the Joseph Smith Papers Project is they have separated those two documents even though they're found in the same book. The 1834 to 1836 history of the church is under its separate link and file in the Joseph Smith Papers Project. And then in another place, you have volume one of the manuscript history of the church or A1 of the manuscript history of the church. So what they did with the manuscript history of the church was they flipped over the earlier history, turned it around, started on page one on the new front of the book, and they wrote the manuscript history up to the point where it came about five pages away from running into the writing from the earlier history coming the other way. This is no doubt why James B. Allen wrote that he was surprised that nobody had noticed this before and that it took until 1966 for it to be pointed out to him, which I take as his understated way of saying, of course somebody noticed this before. How could you not notice this before? If you work in the church historian's office and if you are dealing with the manuscript history of the church in such a way as to get it ready for publication, which it was published, now we have to get to the manuscript history of the church. So before we go further, let's talk about volume one or A1 of the manuscript history of the church which later became published as History of the Church by Joseph Smith. It is the very first pages of the first volume of the Manuscript History of the Church that contains the 1838 account of the first vision and the one that has been put in the LDS scriptures in the Pearl of Great Price. If you turn to that account, as I am doing right now in my triple combination, you will see it says Joseph Smith History, but then it says underneath it, extracts from the history of Joseph Smith the prophet because this is where it is taken from. Volume 1 or A1 of the manuscript history of the church. It was later published as history of the church by Joseph Smith and underneath that it states in the Pearl of Great Price the source is history of the church volume 1 chapters 1 through 5. So this is what commences the manuscript history of the church. And this is why I was saying it was commenced in 1838 because in the very first pages of the manuscript history, i.e. the history of the church, is Joseph Smith's 1838 account of the first vision, which subsequently became the official account of the first vision and the one that has made it into the LDS canon. Okay, now having said all of that, I hope this is clear so far. It took me a long time to get this clear in my head and I hope I'm doing it justice in explaining it to you. If it's a bit fuzzy, please just replay it again and follow the steps that I went through in going through the Joseph Smith Papers Project. I think it will become clearer to you 
if you do those steps. Now, having said that much, let's go on. The manuscript history of the church now, which is going to comprise six volumes, begins with Joseph Smith's birth, his early life, and his first vision account, and then talks about Moroni coming and all the other things that we have in the Pearl of Great Price. It then goes on to detail the history of the church from day to day and month to month and all the different things that were happening thereafter. The manuscript history of the church does not get to the year 1835 until the second volume. It is B2 of the Manuscript History of the Church, or if you're looking at it in a published format, it is the second volume. Here's where things get interesting, because in the Manuscript History of the Church, in the second volume, it comes to November of 1835, and it relates Joseph Smith's encounter with Joshua the Jewish minister in Kirtland, Ohio. And let me actually go ahead and look this up. Now, if you go to the Joseph Smith Papers Project, you go to the homepage again, you go down to Histories, you open it up, you'll see History, 1838 to 1856, Manuscript History of the Church. Click on that, and now you'll see the different volumes. There's Volume A1, Volume B1, Volume C1, there's an addenda to Volume C1, there's D1, there's E1, and there's F1. Those are the six volumes. If you click on the first one, you'll see it commences with some very familiar sounding words. Owing to the many reports which have been put in circulation by evil disposed and designing persons in relation to the rise and progress of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, all of which have been designed by the authors thereof to militate against its characters at church, blah, blah, blah. This is what we have in the scriptures. This is what we have in the Joseph Smith history section of the Pearl of Great Price. And it goes on to give the official account, the 1838 account of the first vision. Now go back to the page before it and now click on the second volume in the history which is volume B1. You'll see that goes from September of 1834 to 2nd November 1838. That will include November of 1835. We click on that. Now go to the table of contents and scroll down until we get to 9 November 1835, Monday. Click on that. By the way, that's page 637 in this second volume of the Manuscript History of the Church. And here we find the relevant section. While sitting in my house between 10 and 11 this morning, a man came in and introduced himself to me, calling himself by the name Joshua the Jewish Minister. He goes on to describe his appearance. This is all following the language from Joseph Smith's 1835 journal, or perhaps following the language in the 1834 to 1835 history in the back of volume one of the manuscript history of the church, which is basically using the same language. But there's something missing in the manuscript history of the church. And if you guessed the first vision account, you go to the head of the class. I commenced giving him a relation of the circumstances connected with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon as recorded in the former part of this history, period. Now it skips not only the first vision account, but also the account of Moroni coming to Joseph Smith and giving him the Book of Mormon. It says, I commenced giving him a relation of the circumstances connected with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon as recorded in the former part of this history, period. Now it skips the first vision and the visit of Moroni and says, While I was relating a brief history of the establishment of the Church of Christ in these last days, Joshua seemed to be highly entertained. And then it goes on. See, it is totally omitted the first vision account, as well as the account of the visit of Moroni. And you will also note that they changed the language there. Instead of saying, as it did in the prior documents, I commenced giving him a relation of the circumstances connected with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, which were nearly as follows. It changes that last language and says, as recorded in the former part of this history. 
Well, when it's talking about the former part of this history, it's talking about Volume 1 or A1 of the Manuscript History of the Church. Remember, this is in Volume 2, also designated as B1 of the Manuscript History of the Church, in which we get to 1835 and this specific encounter, which I've been reading to you. So what can we make of this? Well, it is obvious that in 1838, 1839, 1840, whenever it was that the church leaders and the historians got around to writing Volume 2 or B1 of the Manuscript History of the Church, they were using the earlier accounts of Joseph Smith's encounter with Joshua, the Jewish minister, as a source for writing this part of the history. This work was supervised by Joseph Smith, so in all likelihood, he was aware of this change being made and authorized this omission. Because when they were reading the sources, they could see that Joseph Smith gave an account of the first vision and of Moroni's visit to him. But instead of including it, they omitted it from this version in the manuscript history and simply refer the reader to the new version of the first vision that was given at the beginning of volume one of the manuscript history of the church. Now, when we get into the reasons for doing this, we have to speculate a bit. But I think at a minimum, we can say that Joseph Smith had gone to a lot of trouble at the beginning of volume one of the manuscript history of the church to describe a much more detailed and somewhat new and improved version of the first vision. So now they've gone to volume two of the manuscript history. They get up to 1835. They get to the point where he's giving his older version, the 1835 version of the first vision, and decide to omit it from the record. It appears that the decision was made early on to go with the 1838 account of the first vision and to delete from that same record in which it appears the 1835 account of the first vision. So if you want to call this a suppression of the 1835 account of the first vision, it is apparent that this is when it happened. It happened early on and it likely happened under the supervision and with the authority, if not the direction, of Joseph Smith himself. So here's what happened from that point on. From that point on, the manuscript history of the church became the official history of the church. It was published, as I say, in six volumes with an additional seventh volume added later thereafter called Interregnum. The first six volumes were titled History of the Church by Joseph Smith. That is the published version of the manuscript history of the church. This seven-volume publication of the church history had been prepared in the early part of the 20th century by B.H. Roberts, an avid historian, and who himself served as assistant church historian from 1902 until his death in 1933. B.H. Roberts took the manuscript history of the church, which had already been published serially in LDS newspapers and periodicals, and modified it and attempted to make it better, clarify it, update it, and he published his new version of the history of the church in this multi-volume set, titled History of the Church by Joseph Smith, and was also sometimes referred to as the Documentary History of the Church, or DHC. The key point here, for purposes of what we're talking about, is that when B.H. Roberts updated the history of the church and made it into the Documentary History of the Church, he did not correct the account of Joseph Smith's encounter with Joshua the Jewish minister to put back in the 1835 account of the first vision into the narrative. He followed the manuscript history of the church's version and omitted it as well. And now the documentary history of the church becomes the preeminent source for scholars to use as a reference work when writing about the history of the church. It was the documentary history of the church that Joseph Fielding Smith used in the 1930s when he produced teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. And in teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, he also recounts 
Joseph Smith's encounter with Joshua the Jewish minister in Kirtland in November of 1835 and similarly omits the mention of the first vision account from that narrative. So in the course of this, the 1835 account of the first vision gets effectively lost to history, at least as far as the public is concerned. The question remains, what is going on inside the church historian's office? It is very difficult to believe, as James B. Allen says, that nobody had noticed that there's 180-some-odd pages in the back of Volume 1 of the Manuscript History of the Church, written upside down and coming the other way, which contains the 1835 account of the First Vision. And it is similarly difficult to believe that nobody actually read Joseph Smith's own journal from 1835, in which the 1835 account of the First Vision is also contained, and probably where it was originally recorded. So while it is possible to conceive that the reason the 1835 account of the First Vision languished in obscurity for over a hundred years was due to simple negligence and mismanagement on the part of the church historian's office, it seems much more likely that at least somebody in the church historian's office, including the church historian himself, which would have been Joseph Fielding Smith from 1921 to 1970, knew of its existence and, in the words of Daniel Peterson, sat on the 1835 account of the first vision. Now, it was never cut out of either of these documents in which it was contained and stored in Joseph Fielding Smith's safe like the 1832 account of the first vision. Instead, it was simply never mentioned and deference was given to the 1838 account of the first vision, which was contained in the manuscript history from which the 1835 account of the first vision had been omitted in Joseph Smith's lifetime. Now, 1964 rolls around and word of the 1832 account is getting leaked out into the public as we've discussed in prior podcasts. This is causing some embarrassment for the church. Joseph Fielding Smith then has it taken out of his safe. Once again, we're talking about the 1832 account now. Out of his safe, put back in letter book one from which he had cut it 30 years before and brings it to the attention of Paul Chessman so he can include it in his master's thesis as Appendix D in 1965. The Tanners get a hold of the thesis, and then they are the first to publish the 1832 account of the first vision. So at this time, there are multiple historians working in the church historian's office. And in the context and melu of the 1832 account coming forward, one of them sees or knows about the 1835 account of the first vision in the back of the first volume of the manuscript history of the church. This staff worker at the church historian's office does not bring it to light himself, which you would normally expect. If you make a find like that, you would want to bring it to light yourself, but no. For some reason, and possibly because there would be negative ramifications if the staff worker brought it to light himself, this staff worker brings it to the attention of another historian named James B. Allen. The staff worker shows it to James B. Allen. James B. Allen sees it, copies it down by hand into his own notes, and then uses that to write his 1966 dialogue article, where the 1835 account is published for the first time. Once again, it is unusual that the church historian who found it in the church historian's office did not publish on it himself. Instead, it was shown to James B. Allen, and the thing that seems to clinch the case that this was somewhat of a cloak-and-dagger scenario is that when James B. Allen publishes his 1966 article, he does not even name the church historian who brought it to his attention. This is something that is not to be mentioned because standard operating procedure would be obviously you're going to name the person who discovered it and showed it to you, just as he names in the same article Paul Chessman who discovered the 1832 account of the first vision 
1965 and put it in his master's thesis. So in a sense, I think it may be fair to say, though I can't be positive, it may be fair to say that this 1835 account of the first vision was actually leaked from the church historian's office to James B. Allen and to the Dialogue Journal in 1966. But after it was leaked, it was made public. The church became more comfortable with the fact that it was out there in the public domain. Remember the 1835 account of the first vision, although it is somewhat different and has different elements than the official version, the 1838 account, it is nowhere near as problematic with actual contradictions like the 1832 account is when compared with the 1838 account. The 1835 account is only somewhat problematic. So it should not have caused as much heartburn for the church when it was published in 1966. By the time four more years roll by, the church wants to try and show as best they can that the four accounts of the first vision, which are now out there in the public domain, are not really a big problem, don't really contradict themselves as much as some people are saying, and they commissioned James B. Allen to write an article for the church magazine, The Improvement Era, in 1970, in which he does set forth at least portions of the different accounts of the first vision, including the 1832 account and the 1835 account. And it is in that 1970 article that now that things have apparently cooled down somewhat, that he is able in footnote three to actually identify for the first time the staff worker at the church historian's office who had brought it to his attention initially in June of 1966, and his name was Dean Jesse. So that is about all I have to say regarding the reasons that the 1835 account of the first vision remained unknown to the public from the time it was written down initially in Joseph Smith's journal in 1835 until it was finally published in Dialogue in 1966, more than 130 years later. Does the evidence suggest that this 1835 account was suppressed? Yes, I think that's fair to say. Does the evidence suggest that Joseph Fielding Smith had something to do with it? Well, I think the evidence is very clear that Joseph Smith had something to do with it. The evidence is less clear on Joseph Fielding Smith. Either he did have something to do with it, or he was incredibly incompetent and was not aware of it. I think that he probably was aware of it and simply sat on the information and did not bother to bring it to public light, even though he could have had he chosen to. The reason this has required so much work on my part and so much research is because precious little is written about the coming forth of the 1835 account of the first vision. And what James B. Allen wrote about it is fragmentary and incomplete. But once again, that is doubtless because his access to the materials in the church historian's office was extremely limited. So in this podcast, we have considered the manuscript evidence contained in the Joseph Smith Papers Project, i.e. in the church archives, of why it is the 1835 First Vision account lay unwept, unhonored, and unsung in the church historian's office for 130 years and did not come to light until the year after the 1832 account came to light in 1965. And whereas the evidence of suppression for the 1832 account is clear to my mind beyond a reasonable doubt, the evidence of the 1835 account being suppressed is not quite so strong. On the other hand, if we already know that the 1832 account of the First Vision was suppressed, it shouldn't be that great a leap to think that the Church did a similar thing with the 1835 account of the first vision. I hope the information presented in this podcast has been interesting to you. I know it has been interesting to me, and I have certainly learned a lot in the process. And my hope is that the information presented in this podcast will be a substantive contribution to the historical discussion of how it is that the 1835 First Vision account was written in not one but two documents contained in the church historian's office, and yet, nevertheless, did not see the light of day until 1966. 
You know, as I consider the situation, it's easy for me to start feeling a little bit sorry for Joseph Fielding Smith. I mean, here he is, the church historian, who has successfully sat on various documents for decades. And now the 1960s roll around, and one by one, these documents begin making their way out of his control and into the public arena. I suppose it's possible for a person in his position to react in different ways to this development. I mean, he could say, look, these documents are starting to go public. I don't want them to go public. I've got other documents that haven't gone public that I'm going to make darn good and sure don't go public. And therefore, I'm going to start cutting them out of different volumes and journals and letter books, removing them from the church historian's office so that they don't go public too. For all we know, that's what happened to the last 16 pages that were cut out of letter book one and are now no longer able Able to be found anywhere in the church historian's office. We covered that situation in a prior podcast. On the other hand, I like to think of Joseph Fielding Smith responding in a different way. Even though he has sat on these First Vision accounts for decades, he sees them going public one by one. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get upset. Instead, he starts to chuckle. He shakes his head. He sits down in his leather swivel chair. He puts his feet up on his big desk in the church historian's office. He cracks open an ice-cold Coke and reaches over and turns on the AM radio and starts to sing along with Bobby Sherman. Thinking about the chump I've been, I have to smile. Didn't I know... Easy come, easy go. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.